Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider illuminated manuscripts, which is something Julie and I knew absolutely nothing about before we started. Not a thing. I don't even remember how we had the idea for this topic. Do you remember? We were having a brainstorming session, and I had just recently watched a TED Talk called what is a butt tuba and why is it in medieval art? And don't ask me why I had read that because that I don't remember. But it was a really interesting video and it taught me something about medieval manuscripts, which was more than what I had known before. And so we decided that we would ask the woman who wrote the video if she would talk to us, Michelle Brown. And she said, yes, which was such a <laughs> shocker. And I have to confess to you, Julie, I was scared about interviewing Michelle, partly because she is such an eminent scholar. She's a superstar in this world, and I am so totally ignorant of her subject, but also she's British, which can be sort of intimidating. <laughs> you know? I don't know if you felt the same way. Of course. Okay. <laughs> This is why we're friends. But it ended up being one of my favorite interviews ever. I mean, Michelle was so warm, so fun, and illuminated manuscripts are fascinating. And she's so knowledgeable. Holy cow. So Michelle Brown is professor of medieval manuscript studies at the School of Advanced Study of the University of London. She was previously curator of illuminated manuscripts at the British Library, and she taught at Cambridge, and she was lay canon and chapter member at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. She has written, lectured, and broadcast widely on this subject. Yes, very widely. And just in case you know as little about illuminated manuscripts as Julie and I knew when we met Michelle, Illumination means anything where you use decoration or imagery to help illustrate. But it's not just illustration, it's also to help navigate and expand meaning and to dig deeper into the text. And that also includes illustrations in the margins or marginalia, which we'll get into later. Of course, these manuscripts were made entirely by hand, and they started way back in the late Roman era and continued into the 17th century. Can I just say one thing which that's kind of cool, which is the marginalia can be drawn at the time that the book is written, or they can be later by later scholars to explain the earlier document. Yes. And then more and more people can pile on, but we'll get into all of that. It's yeah. so cool. <laughs> so we began by asking Michelle what drew her to the study of illuminated manuscripts. And here's what she said. I remember being taken when I was four to the galleries in what was at the British Museum to see a book that meant a great deal to my mother and father called The 
Lindisfarne Gospels that was made on Holy Island off of the north coast of England in about 720. They took me along to see it and had to hold me up so I could see it in its snow white coffin glass case. And it just totally blew me away. And I went home and wrote in my little girl diary that night that instead of being an astronaut, I was going to save civilization by being a librarian. And um, <laughs> it just, it just reached best. out and pulled me in. And I never dreamed for one moment that I would actually one day become the um, curator of illuminated manuscripts at what was then become the British Library and also have the opportunity to really study them in depth because these wonderful books, they're quite fragile. So only the, the people who initially sort of owned them would generally get the chance to be able to study them in that way until modern scholarship. Now I need to know why are they so fragile? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, many of them, most of them, in fact, until the end of the Middle Ages, are uh, painted on membrane. It's either vellum, which is calf skin, or parchment, which is sheep or goat skin. Now, if you think about it, unless you keep that sort of prepared skin in optimum stable temperature and humidity, they're going to try and get back to the shape of the animal in the field. They'll become concave. Okay. And the only thing holding those jewel-like colours onto that moving surface is beaten egg white. And so the page moves, the egg white cracks and the colours come off the page. And of course, in addition to that, every time you handle a manuscript, if you touch the painted and written surfaces, you run the risk of lifting up some of the, the pigments and inks as well. And of course, when you transport them for exhibitions, etc., etc., again, there's a big danger of damage occurring. But of course, for most of their early lives, they would have been in um, quite damp monasteries, castles, etc., etc., and, mm -hmm. and being transported in wagons with large wooden wheels. It is amazing that these manuscripts have survived 700 years or more and Absolutely. are still so vibrant. What's the best way for a total illuminated manuscript ignoramus like myself to begin to relate to this material? Well, obviously, come on a course with Michelle Brown, but hey, yes. we can't do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's lots of literature and there's lots and lots of um, webinars and seminars and things um, up online now, including some of my own. But I think it's fair to say that some of them on first acquaintance, it is like that catchy tune that you get straight away. But others, like more complex pieces of music, they're the ones that you tend to return to time and time and time again. Each time you go to them, your journey into them gets deeper. And that's partly because you're changing and you're learning more. And for some of the people that made these books, they would read things like Cassiodorus and Kumi and the Sage, who would say, when you copy, especially scripture, you ruminate on the meaning, you meditate on it. And if you do that successfully, you get that Kachir kapow moment when you get it, you get the bigger picture, the penny drops, and for a moment there you actually get the real meaning of life. And they would say that you stored these things on the shelves of your inner library, the things that were needful to know. That applies not only to words. The medievals were incredibly literate when it comes to images. A lot of their 
poetry, their songs, etc., and their identity stemmed from the visual things that since prehistory, the ink on your skin, your textiles, your jewellery had symbols and styles of ornament that would actually say who you were, what your status was, what your gender was, what you believed, etc. And so for communicators in the late Roman and medieval periods, if you really wanted to reach people, you had to use as much visual material as you could. Well, I have a question that without you, I would never have asked. Um, You've created a TED Talk video called What is a Butt Tuba and Why is it in Medieval Art? So what is a butt tuba and why is it in medieval art? It's not necessarily what I would have captioned it, but hey, it it, it (laughs) catches the attention. And they didn't put things in boxes in the Middle Ages. You know, you didn't have sacred and profane, you know, totally separated, etc. Life was rough and raw. And thinking about those characteristics that you often get in the margins of Gothic manuscripts, and one that you come across in different permutations time and time again, is a grotesque creature. It might be part human, it might be part animal, it might be completely animal, and it will have a a tuba or trumpet or some sort of early um, uh, uh, wind instrument uh, protruding from its backside and the immediate <laughs> way of reading that is oh he's he's talking up his ass um right some things <laughs> never change 700 years later <laughs> right, right, no exactly. no there's a great deal of cartoon type satire that goes on at, at this period in the margins as well <laughs> in the video you mentioned porcupines picking up fruit on their spines in the marginalia a rabbit trying to play a church organ. How do scholars like you go about figuring out what these images meant to the medieval audience? Well, again, we're not in the medieval moment. We can only um, do our best to interpret how they might have seen these things. If you just look at one detail in the margins and take it out of context, you might interpret it in one way. But if you then actually look at it on how it relates to other things on that page, on neighbouring pages, or in the agenda of the manuscripts as a whole, then you can get lots of different meanings out of it. And one of my great heroes, Bede, who was writing in Northumbria in the beginning of the 8th century, says there's a literal meaning of the thing. But if you just stop at that, you're kind of missing most of the point because it's like the layers of an onion and you peel away the layers to get ever deeper into the real heart of the flavour. And so it is with meaning. So, for example, when is a porcupine a porcupine and when is it the crucifixion of Christ? <laughs> it's a question we all ask ourselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should, we should. Um, so sometimes if it's just on a page with lots of other flora and fauna, it might just be there to make it a beautiful page. But even then, the whole language of flowers and animals and jewels would have been well known to the medievals, and they've all got different meanings attached to them. So a porcupine can just be a porcupine, but Pliny said that the porcupine is renowned for rolling on its back and picking up rotten apples on its quills. And in the later Middle Ages, Christian authors interpreted that as Christ being, if you like, the scapegoat for humankind, who takes on himself the rotten apples of our sins upon the cross. Oh, that's fascinating. And fun, (laughs) really fun to decode all of that, right? And if you see it in a margin next to something where you're supposed to be thinking about the impact of your own sins upon your soul and upon 
the environment in which you live, then obviously it's it's appropriate to think in that context about God sacrificing itself for the mess that we make of everything. So much fun. I will never think of a porcupine the same way again. (laughs) And of course, this is what people who compete in memory contests say, right? One of the best ways mnemonically of keying content into your mind is to come up with something ridiculous or sexy or funny or something. So fascinating. We talked to Michelle about how important this was back then, that you couldn't own your own books. There were no computers as there were today. And so back in the 13th century, if you were going to present your own PhD, you have to write it, memorize it, and dictate it. Your memorized PhD in front of a lecture full of 200 or 300 of your professors and peers. Can you imagine? No. Like, no, I can't. Enough today. It no, must have been no, terrifying. I would love to have a memory that sharp, though, I have to say. So one illustrated manuscript that Michelle has written about extensively is the Luttrell Psalter, which is one of the best-known English manuscripts. It's in the British Library, and it was made in the 14th century. And one reason we know a lot about it is that it contains a colophon. And a colophon is something written that tells you a little bit about the who, where, when uh, the book was made. So we asked Michelle to tell us more about the Luttrell Psalter and why it's so important. Here's what she said. The person who had this book made was very far from shy. And there's a whacking great colophon that says in Latin, Lord Geoffrey Luttrell had me made. There's a wonderful (laughs) part man, part goldfish next to it to draw attention to it. And then underneath is a miniature depicting Sir Geoffrey Luttrell, Lord of the Manor of Earnham in Lincolnshire, up on his war horse with his shield and his helmet being handed to him by the two women in his life, his wife Agnes Sutton and their daughter-in-law Beatrice Le Scrope. Marrying wealthy heiresses was really how the Luttrell men made their fortunes. They had a lot of lands, etc. But the women aren't just pawns in this. They would have seen themselves very much as part of, of the family firm. And so it's a celebration if you like of that relationship but it's also more importantly it's the knight going off to joust with eternity with his own humility and with his soul because at that point Sir Geoffrey was in his 50s a ripe old age and couldn't get on his war horse any longer and we know a little bit more about him because he leaves that war horse to the parish priest in his will a bit like leaving your your Ferrari (laughs) he was uh, a bit of a wheeler and dealer he was backing the Lancastrian dynasty in the early 14th century you can imagine the king Edward II had been done away allegedly by his perfidious French Queen Isabella and her lover Mortimer with a red hot poker um, inserted where red hot pokers were never meant to go. So the government was not too stable. And as we know, Sir Geoffrey's manuscript, it's a sorter, it's the whole of the Book of Psalms with a calendar telling you all the different feast days of the year, which saints and which um, seasons you're you're in 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 church time, etc. And it's also got the music for the Office of the Dead that would be played at your funeral. Many of these exist, but few of them are as elaborately illuminated as Sir Geoffrey's. Now, the style of it isn't elegant and courtly like some of the French royal sorters would be. This is robust English country squire. Okay. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's quirky. It is really quirky. Every page is a riot of these images in the margins. He spent a lot of money on it. So if you can imagine a very well-heeled hedge fund investor blowing the whole of the year's sort of profits on a deluxe item, this would be it. In those days, that was about £21, £22. Pounds sterling (laughs) yeah (laughs) and everything's relative yeah yeah and so initially he goes to the big town that he most does most of his business with the wool town of Norwich and he has the book written and the main illumination in the text is done by three artists who work in the town and at that period rather than being made in monasteries most of the books are made in towns by teams of men and women women have always been involved in book production by the way from the year dot he goes there and he commissions it But in the margins, he can move beyond the sort of things that you would have illuminating a religious text. And he can actually bring more of his own agenda into that. There are incredible grotesques, which led um, one of the famous early 20th century curators of manuscripts at the BM, um, Miller, to say, Basically, the artist must have been on some sort of substance, poisoning from mushrooms was mentioned, etc. But it's not that. They're, they're taking these grotesques from contemporary law manuscripts in Italy, where in the margins you would have these grotesques where horrible hybrids of the bestial and the human would be put together to illustrate heinous crimes and aberrations against nature and, and all, all the sorts of things that you might need to do penance for. Okay, so some of them look pretty nightmarish. Others of them would make very, very, very acceptable and cuddly domestic pets. They're by no means all evil so-and-so. And so there's obviously a lot going on there, different aspects of human nature, animal nature, that you can parody or you can explore in these sort of images. But then, of course, there's the other thing, which is Sir Geoffrey prides himself on the his rep reputation as an old soldier. He'd been in the field 13 years. That's all got to be reflected in there. But also the overriding thing is he wants to make it to heaven. He doesn't want all of what he's done in this world to stop him from entering into the next. And so part of it is self-justification of the good stuff that he's done or actually looking at, well, why did these bad things happen and how sorry am I now that they did happen and all of those parts tend to be illuminated by this quirky hand he is the one who really puts Jeffrey and his family through it up close and personal all of their sins and their peccadilloes are rehearsed he works in the central third of the book because you work on different parts of the book simultaneously it's not bound to the book while you're working on it it's a lot of separate leaves that go through a lot of different hands for different stages of writing and illuminating and then the stationer brings them all together gets them bound and collects the money from the patron but this third I think it's his confessor who was a Dominican friar brother William of Fotheringay the job of this confessor is to make sure that Sir Geoffrey and the family make it to the celestial feast at God's table and so, therefore, I mean, the things that you get in it, oh, my Lord, there's um, <laughs> there's one particular page, looks innocent enough to begin with. It's a very beautiful young girl sitting there with her hair being done by her maid. And the maid is very modestly attired with her head covered. But this young girl is so vain. She's got her mirror and her comb. Oh, I'm so gorgeous. And she's got her little locked jewel case 
bricks with all of her wealth sitting in front of her. And in the margin is a young man catching a bird in a net. Mm-hmm. And he's got a clerical tonsure. So he's obviously um, he's at some stage in, in his religious vows and profession. But it's got a sort of George Michael stubble. It's growing out. <laughs> He's not exactly tending the garden. And I think what we've got here is Sir Geoffrey's daughter at one point, Elizabeth, looks like being his heir because his eldest son has died and his younger son hasn't yet been born. And so he's reliant upon her making a good marriage to increase the family fortunes and their political profile. And so he sends her at the age of 12 to the house of the Duke of Worcester to try and clinch a match with his young son because children are often betrothed at a very, very young age. It's a dynastic alliance. And while she's there, she's seduced by a young cleric on the mate called Thomas of Ellica, who elopes with her. And in true fashion, the Mr. Darcy's of the day set off in hot pursuit because it was in a lot of very important people's interest that this marriage should go ahead. And eventually they catch up with her. Now, Given that the book is a major corporation sort of profits for the year, and that's about £22, how much do you think Sir Geoffrey and his wider circle of bishops and nobles stump up to get Elizabeth back with her reputation and hopefully something else intact? How much would you pay? I think they would pay more than 22 because this is about ensuring future generations, right? I'm going to go for... 40. Okay. Any advance on 40? <laughs> <laughs> that actually was. Oh, I don't envy your guess. children. I do not envy <laughs> your children. <laughs> oh, yeah? Oh, you think so? So, I don't know, 100? <laughs> okay, wait for it. A thousand. A thousand <gasps> oh, pounds wow. sterling. It was a royal ransom. It really was a royal ransom. So many people must have stumped up. And so, sure enough, the young lady is restored and her reputation is safeguarded and she goes on to conclude the marriage with the Duke's son. So there's that. Now, two other things. On a nearby page is another figure which has got almost the same silhouette as the figure of the young lady doing her hair with her drapery. She's sitting on the floor with her draper coming around and that's a mermaid and she's holding up her mirror and comb in the same posture etc now the mermaid can be interpreted several ways in the middle ages but one of the ways is that she was literally the advertisement sign that would hang outside brothels as a symbol of prostitution oh my so mm. at one level, <laughs> the similarity formally between the vain young lady who elopes and the mermaid of prostitution is one thing. And a few um, pages further on, you've got uh, a, a girl who, again, looks very similar to the one doing her hair. But now she's a little bit older. She's got a widow's hood on. She's wearing the same beautiful pink frock, etc. So it looks very like her. But now she's a widow. And she's sitting there on the floor, legs akimbo, not a very elegant position and she's got a little pet squirrel with a silver bell around its neck on a leash and she's gesturing to it and it's rather like inviting the squirrel into her lap Mm -hmm. and perhaps this is a symbol of her now in charge of her own destiny and her own libido because the squirrel is the beaver of its day it's the medieval symbol (laughs) of female sexuality 
There's our fun fact for the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, when the next royal gets married, when Edward III gets married in a few years' time, his bride, Philippa of Hainault, was so proud of her potential fertility that she had squirrels embroidered on her wedding dress and actually kept pet squirrels. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. That's amazing. Yeah, but I, I feel the need to just say one moment in defense of Elizabeth Luttrell. I mean, she was 12 years old and she was seduced by a clerk and then for eternity now she's she's slut shamed. I don't I'm not I'm, I'm a little irritated on her behalf. But you can't help feeling that our Dominican artist actually is a bit tongue in cheek as well. Um, Elizabeth looks very happy with her squirrel. Oh, good. Okay, so maybe it's an empowerment, maybe it's female yeah. empowerment, right? Yeah. 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 So um, I think I already have a sense of the answer to this question, but you've compared medieval ornamental illustration to film. Can you say a little bit more about what you meant? Yeah, I think in some of these manuscripts, especially where you've got a sort of visual narrative going on, you're using the pictures to tell the story in the same way that you would um, a film storyboard for example. And in the same way, you have sort of flashback sequences, you have sort of um, premonitions of the future. So it's not always necessarily a linear chronological narration. And you can have allusions to other things by depicting things in a certain way, by having certain motifs. People would know immediately that you're supposed to identify your hero figure with King Arthur or whatever. And then, of course, you think for many people, these would be recited if you were teaching your children how to read in an urban environment in the Middle Ages. You would be as literate as you needed to be to turn a, a living. Mm -hmm. You'd be literate more so probably than an earl's son or daughter living on the land in a, in a manor house, only interested in hunting, shooting and fishing. It wasn't just status that determined your access to these things. So medieval merchants' wives would teach their children how to read using the equivalent of the family Bible, the book of hours from which they would recite their daily devotions. And so the visuals, they're not only to entertain, but also to instruct. Um, you've also compared reading a page of an illuminated manuscript to clicking on hyperlinks on a web page, which I can so see right now. I mean, it's, it's very clear. Yeah. But could you talk a little bit about the glossed study texts used in schools and early universities? When I read about that, it sounds like the internet was invented in medieval times. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. If you look at some of the books that were produced in Paris and Oxford around about 1200 and early 13th century, they're large um, volumes and you've got the main text so it might be um, say if you're talking about Peter Lombard's commentary on the Psalms the main text would be written handwritten in if you like in computer terms a larger font size in the centre of the page and then Peter Lombard's commentary his lecture notes if you like from his lecture series would wrap round that it would have very, very wide margins and it would be laid out and ruled carefully so that the commentary text would wrap around the the main text that you're commenting on, and initials in both of those texts would serve as the key points to know where each part of the text began and what, where the commentary links to the bit that's being commented on in the main text. That's like having two windows open 
on your device, yeah? Mm -hmm. But then you have other commentaries wrapped around in the margins and you would also have enough space for subsequent readers to be able to add their own comments or notes from other texts that they were reading that were relevant as well. And one example that I particularly like is Sir Peter Lombard commentary. And it was owned at one point by a very famous English churchman called Herbert of Bosom, who bought it in Paris to give it to Thomas Beckett. And so he annotates it before he gives it to Beckett. And one of the things that he's added is there are little figures in the margins. And this is the period when you start getting pointing fingers and hands, often with quite elaborate cuffs, etc., pointing at the part of the text. So it's like a nota bene or a post-it note or a highlighter marker, if you like, saying, right, this is the bit that we're looking at. But he goes beyond that. And he actually does a beautiful little illustration of the philosopher Aristotle and Aristotle is pointing with an arrow to a note in the margin, which Peter Lombard, for once, has actually got it wrong. He says this comment is, is actually attributed to Aristotle. And Herbert Bosom has drawn, or his scribe has drawn, Aristotle with an arrow pointing to it and with a speech bubble saying, non-ego, wasn't me. And, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> you know, again, the visuals coming in yeah. are, are just remarkable. The layers of meanings in illuminated manuscripts are obviously, as you've been saying, so deep and multifaceted. Are we living now in a less metaphorical age? Are we less intellectually sophisticated today than people were then? I don't think we are less intellectually sophisticated, but I think that the popularization of culture has meant that that sophistication is less accessible to an awful lot of people ironically enough we can be very good at unpacking certain symbols but they tend to be the ones that go round and round on the merry-go-round of popular culture in terms of digging deeper and following the hairs wherever they lead you when they run I'd like to see us more engaged in that and I think deep thinking nuanced thinking it's still there and many of us do it in our own lives in our own reading in our own thinking in our own belief but it was probably always thus an awful lot of people just don't bother I think what's different now is that with so much accessibility we've got far less excuse for not being more nuanced and more Boolean. The more choice we have in front of us, the more we seem to retreat into oversimplistic black and white, either or. When with applying ourselves to detail and actually putting in the legwork, we can open up incredible, incredible expanses in our thinking, in our learning, in our compassion, and in our creativity and our technologies. I love what Michelle just said about deep thinking. I was just talking to a friend about the political mess we're in now and her theory that one of the primary reasons we're in it is because we don't have a habit of a lifetime of critical deep thinking. It would be so much better off if we had childhoods and, and adulthoods too that were really immersed in something like illuminated manuscripts. That is so true. 
And then on the other hand, I also appreciate these moments when time shrinks to nothing and we realize people in the year 800 were no different from people today. They were doodling blowhards with trumpets up their asses, just the same <laughs> way we might today. So, so maybe so, we're not so different after all. So true. And on that note, I think that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Michelle at michellepbrown.com and on Twitter at digiscriptor. D-I-G-I-S-C-R-I-P-T-O-R. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.